Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. In this episode, Matt Baker speaks with author, educator, and radical theologian Maria French about her recently published book titled Safer Than the Known Way, A Post-Christian Journey. The conversation centers predominantly on issues relevant to radical theology, post-Christian thought, and faith after the death of God, with something of an emphasis on the more spectral and apophatic theological valences within that tradition. Check the show notes where you'll find more information about Marie and her work, including where to purchase the book. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Here is Maria French. Well, it's great to be here with everyone. And Matthew, thank you so much for having me on. This is very cool to have this conversation with you and and to dialogue with you a little bit about my book and radical theology. And obviously, it's something I'm passionate about. Um, Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. Uh, My name is Maria Francesca French, and I officially go by the subtitle um, Post-Christian Thinker and Writer. And I do a lot of work that encompasses post-theist thought and what does life and faith look like after God and after Christianity, but still engaging Christianity and still engaging God, little G God, of course. Um, I do a lot in the sphere of radical theology. Um, I've worked in contexts of church church innovation and theological innovation. And yeah, so I've written this book about the work that I've done really over the last 10 plus years and really excited to share it with the world and share it with Matthew and uh, our listeners on this podcast. So thank you. No, that's you. great. Appreciate it. There was something in there that I was curious about. Um, yeah. You were talking about how th- you do a lot of theological innovation and church yeah. innovation. Yeah. Um, and I was curious what that looks like, um, but you might as well say something as well about how radical theology sort of factors in and what that looks like. Yeah. So for me, you know, faith and my engagement with Christianity, with God, with belief, with theology, all of it has really just changed from season to season. Do you know what I mean? Every time I've been in a, not so much like in a different place in life, but like as you grow in your intellect, in your sense of self, in the context you find yourself in life, you know, your faith continues to change and transform. And, you know, I know kind of deconstruction is the word that pop culture is sort of going by at the moment to denote their, their faith dismantling or, you know, their belief disentangling or, you know, whatever you want to say it. Um, But, you know, this word has really kind of only been trendy the last few years. And I think before that, a lot of us who were experiencing those changes, you know, we were just kind of thinking, okay, well, like faith is changing, belief is changing, what I'm staking my claim in, you know, spiritually and theologically, philosophically, it's all changing. And, you know, as it's changed for me, I've really been lucky enough to have work and to have vocational opportunities that changed along with it. And a few years ago, well, I say a few years ago, but it's like post-pandemic, it's like a few years ago, it's really like several years ago. Uh Um, I found myself working, well, I've always worked in a context of like theological innovation, especially within education. You know, I've been an adjunct professor, I've been in seminary administration, I've done some really cool things in seminary education um, in my life and in my career. And I've always worked to sort of further new processes and new ways of engaging knowledge and and God and what that looks like in a theological education setting. And a few years ago, I found myself working in Southern California with a denomination and at denominational leadership where I was working with churches that were sort of flailing and failing. And I was leading a team that would go in and say, okay, how are we going to innovate this? Or are you going to compost and do we need to figure out how to like die well here? You know, because what's happening. It's a great question. Yeah. I mean, to, to really sort of lay it all out there and, and to be blunt about it. And I mean, you know, the, the stats and all of the surveys and all of the data and all of the research for years has been showing the American church in decline, right? That's no secret. 
Um, and I think the church's response to that over the last 10 to 20 years has been like, okay, how are we going to make things more modern, more contemporary? Like, what are we going to do to go after young people? First, it was the millennials. Now it's Gen Z. You know, then it's going to be alpha generation. And, you know, they've maybe changed their methodology a little bit, but the theology is still the same. And they're trying to move like really outdated past their sell by date ideas into uh-huh. the future, into new contexts and new methodologies, but the new methodologies aren't fit for the old theologies or, you know, they change their theologies, but they're packaging the new theology in the same old ways. And it's not attractive to anybody. And nobody's been able to figure out a formula for how to move faith forward in ways where we sort of take our hands off of anything we think we're controlling at all. And we say there are no sacred cows, you know, everything is vulnerable to, to change and to adaptability. And what does it look like to actually engage and impart real transformation in community? And what does it look like to identify real felt needs within a community and actually address those both methodology and theologically? So in terms of my vocational work, that is sort of some of what what I've been able to do in the last several years of, of my career. And I think where radical theology comes in is that it really turns confessional theology on its head and it gives confessional theology a real run for its money. And that means we need to rethink everything, (laughs) like everything. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is hard work across the board. It's not an overnight thing. Um, It's sort of a year's thing and a decade's thing and a lifetime thing and a generational thing. But I think once you really get down into radical theology, I think it's a really good fit for you know, our 21st century lives and situations and, and contexts. So, you know, it's, it can be hard trying to adapt it, I think, to church contexts because people are so used to a certain way of doing things. Um, but that doesn't mean we, <laughs> we shouldn't try. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, what you're saying about churches dying with dignity, I think is really interesting. I, I just yeah. learned about there's a profession. I don't think there's many people doing it, but I mean, you know what a doula is, right? Mm-hmm. There's a um, a death a, doula. Is that what you're going to say? Uh, yeah, a growing field. Yeah. And as you were talking, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe that's a thing. We should have like hospice care for churches. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a bad idea, but only if a church decides that it is a good time to die. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And they they can no longer um, serve their their constituency, or that they're better off composting and transforming into something else rather than like a brick and mortar building and all there's there's a lot of a lot of questions to ask i guess before church yeah when you do that kind of work i would imagine you wouldn't be foregrounding the kind of language that is uh, common for for radical theology right i could see that being very off-putting for a lot of people at least initially have you run into anything like that Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's funny. I was just talking with my husband about this earlier. You know, so many people see my work as, you know, quite radical and quite unorthodox and quite pushing it all as far as it could possibly go. And then some, but I do that knowing that most people, most Christians, most people who are going past Christianity will maybe will never get to sort of where I am. Maybe they'll never take it that far, but if I can move them an inch or a couple inches out from the corner that they're in or the side of the spectrum that they're in, do you know what I mean? You almost, you have to go a mile in hopes that people will sort of follow you and maybe go an inch. I've tried to package the ideas of radical theology and post-theistic thought, at least when I'm in a church context, in ways that make sense for my audience. You know, it doesn't make any sense and it's unkind and it's unwise and it's not pastoral or loving at all to go in front of a group of people and just say some sexy things for the sake of saying them. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. So that is what I try not to do. I've never really tried my hand at it, but I imagine it's probably hard to be a popularizer of radical theology you know, there's only one other person I can think of that has done it well, who, by the way, is notably absent from your book. Do you want to talk about Peter Rollins for a second? Oh, gosh. Yeah. No, he's not noticeably absent. Well, I mean, I I don't engage with his work. He um, endorsed my book. He's the first endorsement you read when you open the book. (laughs) Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me look. Hold on. His endorsement's the first page. Yeah. I I never read these pages. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, Pete's a good friend. And, um, you know, we've been friends for for years now and we've done some stuff together and, and he's great. And I think, I mean, talk about a popularizer of radical theology, like he he is it, there's no no close second. I wouldn't consider myself a close second to to his success with it at all. 
Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I did not interact with his work for any other reason, except that my book is about 200 pages. And <laughs> there are a lot of people that I could have interacted with that I didn't, you know, trying to give people, I suppose, not bite-sized snippets, but to present the ideas in big enough ways in sort of a 30,000 foot way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually am in contract for like three more books over the next two years. And I have one coming out in June. And so his work will not be absent <laughs> from those. It's not a criticism. It was, just, uh, yeah. it was just kind of an observation. I thought it was curious as like, as a kind of popularizer of, of sorts of radical theology. But yeah, so you've written this book. It's yeah. called uh, Safer Than the Known Way. Yeah. Um, and uh, first of all, I mean, the cover is beautiful. Who did the cover art for this? Thank you. Um, his name is Raphael Palendo, and he works with uh, Choir, which is the publisher of the book. He used to be the head of Choir, and he stepped de- he stepped down to only do covers. He's just a brilliant graphic designer, and two others have stepped up that now run run the publishing house. But yeah, he does all the covers for Choir books, and he's oh, just nice. amazing. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm a graphic designer myself. I do you know some work, and I'm like, this is really beautiful. I can't really tell Thank what's you. going on with it. It sort of invokes a few different things for me. Like the first of all, it's like a portal. Yes, and, it, and it's and it's and it's very thin. It's a very yeah. it's a very interestingly shaped portal. It's it has a vaginal quality. I don't know. Yeah, if it absolutely does. Um, and I don't know if you want to say anything about that. It's also pink. And then in the background, <laughs> th- there is um, some very bleak Nietzschean looking mountains. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Do you want to say something about what was behind the uh, the cover art? Yeah. So this is all Ralph, I have to say, you know, my publishing house is amazing. They're so author centric. And so they really invite the author in, in the process. And so we give them a couple of ideas or, Mm -hmm. you know, some examples of stuff we like and they run with it. And so, you know, he sent me back several covers that all had to do with portals and gates. And this was just the one that I liked the best. And I, when I saw it, the first thing I thought of was, oh my God, it looks like a vagina. (laughs) And I sent it back back to Ralph and I sent it back to um, the two guys that are at the top of choir at the moment. And I just thought, Hey, like you three men, do you realize that you came up with a cover that looks like a womb? Um, And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure they noticed that or not. And and that's okay with me. But in the end, I thought, you know what, like you said, it's a portal. It's kind of a thin portal. And, you know, for me, if you look around the portal, it's a tear that has been made into a wall. Mm-hmm. is an opening like where there was just a blank dark gray wall nowhere to go you're just bumping into a dead end you know someone has come and just rammed right through that and opened up a gateway into another world a big wide world where you have no compass you have no map and you don't know what you're doing you don't know where you're going and i thought i love that because sometimes we get to the end of our christianity and we don't think there's any anywhere else to go with it we've just come to the end of it and so we think okay agnosticism or atheism or just something that some other form of closure some other form of closure right rather than closure an opening to a to a new journey or something like that yeah and i just i just loved that and i thought to myself well it looks like a womb and you know why not i'm a woman and i'm the one who's written the book so why not celebrate um you know the implicit femininity and the feminine quality in that so let's go with this one <laughs> yeah no it's it's interesting to hear that that was sort of accidental it was i think on their part but then it became really intentional on mine so yeah then it's just like beautiful let's let's go with it yeah yeah um, it's funny i've had like just really quickly i've had like a range of reactions like i've had women see it and they definitely like see the feminine aspect of it and they're just like oh this is so empowering like we love mm-hmm. this is there's not a lot of women writing about this kind of thing um and then you have the dudes that are like oh does anybody know that it looks like <laughs> it's like yeah <laughs> like, yeah we do <laughs> we're adults we know what it looks like <laughs> yeah we got it i mean it has that um you know virgin of guadalupe uh sort of outline to it mm-hmm. as well but anyway, enough yeah. about the cover. <laughs> yeah, enough about the cover. But so um, I, I'm not really sure how to do, describe this book. Maybe it's a sort of theological memoir of sorts mm-hmm. um, where you're kind of, you know, in large part taking us uh, through your early life and experiences in the church, at least like, you know, some of the more formative ones sure. um, up to where you are now. So there's this biographical element that's important here, I think. And I think the personal nature of the book is what, you know, kind of really sold it for me and makes it work. Mm -hmm. And I know you've talked about yourself a little bit, but maybe you can say a little bit more about your, your background, your theological background, and maybe something about your sort of 
I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what the word is. My suspicion is that there's a certain type that is drawn to radical theology. Mm. Uh, and I'm sort of doing some very unscientific <laughs> <laughs> um, polling around what those characteristics mm. are. So yeah, anything in, in any of that. Yeah, it, you you picked up on a really important piece, the theological memoir. Um, I would say when I talk about the book, um, I use those two words and I say, you know, it reads part spiritual memoir and part theological manifesto. Um, you know, I didn't want to just write a theological book. I didn't want to just write an academic book. I could have done that. Um, there are enough people who are writing those books. I wanted to, like you said, write a more popular book, but I didn't want to... <sighs> this is going to sound so bad. I didn't want to go for the low hanging fruit. Like I didn't want to write a book that would just tickle itching ears or like affirm, you know, what everybody thinks about one particular thing. Like there are enough people doing that. I wanted to write a book that people could identify a little bit of themselves in my story, where I'm coming from, the place in which I do some of this, this, this theological and philosophical work um, and that they would find a sense of resonance in it. But I also wanted to challenge people. You know, essentially I wanted to take, and I've said this a lot, ideas that are usually reserved for and stuck in ivory tower academic context and make them available at a pop culture level, make them more accessible. You know, this, this wasn't a book that, you know, came about overnight. I essentially wrote the book I wish I had about 15 years ago. Do you right. know what I mean? Like yeah. this is the result of, I mean, I have I have two master's degrees and and a doctoral degree, all from different seminaries. You know, I've traveled, I've lived around the world. You know, I've had a ton of different experiences. I've had a ton of different work ranging in university and seminary context to church context to leadership to nonprofit. I've worked with a ton of people. I've taken a lot of risks. I've got some things wrong. I've got some things right. I'm you know, I just turned forty. I have a little bit of life under my belt, and I've written this book. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to save people some of like the years. <laughs> of grief and toiling and, you know, loneliness. I mean, there's always going to be a bit of that that people have to go through when they're making such a leap, I suppose, yeah. theologically speaking, and from a God perspective and from a perspective of belief. But I wanted to save some people some time of, you know, overturning every single stone that they came across type of thing and say, hey, this is the result of a lot of the work that I've done. And I wish I I wish that someone had written this book for me when I was at the beginning of that, that process. You know, for people who have little to no theological background, or even for people who went to seminary, I went to seminary three times and all of the radical theology and post-theistic stuff I had to do on my own. Those were not, not sure. only were they not part of core curriculum, of course they weren't, but they weren't even electives. Like, this is stuff that I either did by independent study, or I found a professor who wanted to work with me, or I found a mentor who was, you know, inside a radical theology paradigm. So I'm, in a sense, I got lucky that I tripped over some of this stuff. And then it really resonated with me. And I followed all of those whispers. And I followed my intuition in that direction. Um, but for people who are falling through the cracks of faith crisis and faith identity and aren't tripping over that stuff or aren't in context to have, you know, theological conversations um, or don't know who to read or don't know what book to pick up like this, not it's not an arrival point. It's hopefully going to be a starting point. This is meant to pique people's interest so that they continue on their own journey. Yeah, it's a sort of signpost. Like yeah. there's, no, there's something else other than jettisoning uh, the entire tradition that you've inherited and, yeah. you know, landing in a place that, of atheism, which is, I don't know, kind of just boring. I have nothing against totally. atheism. I have nothing against atheism. I just think it's kind of boring. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I do. I have I have quite a few things to say about new atheism um, at the very least and progressive and liberal Christianity, which I also find a bit boring. And I sort of say as much in the book. But do you want to talk about that? Because I feel like a lot of times that's what happens, right? People, you know, find themselves in a, some sort of crisis uh, of faith. They're questioning things. They're quote unquote deconstructing. I think this is something you touch on in the book, right? And people end up just changing jerseys. Um, well, exactly. Yeah. You can take a man out of the fundamentalism, but you can't take a fundamentalism out of the man. Something like that's that. It. That's exactly it. And, you know, people will be leaving evangelicalism is in droves, but then they re-entrench themselves in another brand of fundamentalism. You know, the, you know, the pipeline is usually fundamentalist, evangelical to liberal, progressive, Protestant, usually something like Episcopalianism or um, 
you know, something just more palatable. But you're still believing in the same God construct, right? It's the God that lives in the sky. It's the interventionist God. That God is just nicer and just plays for the other team and has a more generous theology. But, you know, the construct is is the same. And the construct is, I think, what, what the problem is. And a lot of times the barrier to real meaning making when it comes to faith. previous project i remember you had something called no more circles a little while back yeah um, yeah that was, that was around the time i was still doing stuff with the catacomic machine and yes, I, can't remember, I, remember. I, can't, I can't remember who it was but somebody suggested that i connect with you and for whatever reason it just never happened uh but i was still i was curious about that then and then it shows up again here in the uh, towards the beginning of your book as a yeah. sort of section heading i was just curious to learn more about the way you describe it in the book, it seemed as though it was almost like this revelatory experience. Do you want to tell me about it? Yeah. So the phrase no more circles comes from the opening line of Mark C. Taylor's book, After God. And it reads as follows. I no longer believe in circles as I once did. And I was living in France at the time and I was by myself in terms of like, I didn't have like a friend that had traveled with me or whatever. I just, I had this opportunity to go to South of France. I took it and I was in the room that I was living in and I was doing an independent study for one of my masters on post-theistic thought. And this was one of the texts and it was a big text and it's, it's a lot to get through. And <laughs> I was really just sort of dipping my toe in, in the whole pool of radical theology and post-theistic thought at that, at that time. And I remember opening this huge volume and reading the sentence. And I just thought, yes, like, this is it. This is totally it. I'm going to follow this trail now because I knew in that moment that I also no longer believed in circles. And I, I did have this aha kind of epiphany moment of, yeah, like belief is just a circle and it just goes around and around on the same fixed point. And it's like this very deceptive illusion because it gives you the sense of travel and movement. And so you don't question it, but you're not actually going anywhere. You're just doing a lot of moving and flailing <laughs> in a circle. In a circle. And it's funny because years earlier I had been primed for that because I remember I, uh, my background is also in New Testament and philosophical hermeneutics and continental philosophy. And um, I remember, you know, sitting in a hermeneutics class one time and we were talking about the hermeneutical spiral as opposed to a hermeneutical circle. And the spiral is the sense that you're you're going around and around, but every time you go around, you're different and your context is different. And even if it's slightly different, um, you know, you're, right. you're never the same again. You're always changed and enacted upon and transformed in some small way even. And so when I read this, no more circles, it had been like years in the making and it all just kind of clicked. And I was just so excited about everything I was learning. So yeah, this was back, God, when was it? It was 2016 or 17 that I started that blog. I think it was 17. Mm -hmm. And I just thought I'm going to share this with, with the world. And so, yeah, I started a blog, no more circles. I, Kept it going. I can't remember. Um, maybe a year, maybe a little less, but I got very busy. And uh, yeah. <laughs> so I kind of halted that. But yeah, it does show up in the book. And that is still a very, not only a formative text, Mark Taylor's After God, um, but it was really kind of a, a moment that split life down, down the middle for me. Okay. I like Taylor's stuff. Uh, I haven't read too much of it, but certainly After God. And uh, what's the other big one? Are you talking about Airing? Yeah, thanks. Airing. That book's fantastic. That book gets a lot of criticism, <laughs> but I agree. I, I, think it's I return to it periodically, and I, I yeah. think there's a lot of gems in there. But I'm I'm with you, and I get that coming out of the rigid worldview. I can understand wanting to reject any kind of self-enclosed, self-referential system of knowledge, whether that's theological or, or scientific or whatever. Yeah. Um, and of course, nothing really can be self-enclosed, right? Like even something that's hermetically sealed yeah. is done artificially. It's a, it, there's an artifice to it. Uh, it's a technical form of privation that closes one part off from reality, blah, blah, blah. But like operationally, this is where we get a lot of our knowledge from is from this artifice. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm, I, I guess I'm totally with you on one hand. On the other hand, I'm really fond of circles, <laughs> <laughs> especially someone who dabbles in occult spaces, right? To close the compass is to, you know, mark out yeah, a space sure. where we where we operate and where we can make sense of the world and we can transpose chaos into terms that we can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. How do, you, how do you feel about circles these days? Still hate them? <laughs> For me, I mean, and, and anyone who reads my book, you know, it's right there in the first chapter. I talk a lot about, you know, I, I went through a divorce as I approached 30. You know, there were a lot of things that changed in my life, not least of which my understanding of God and faith and how I see myself in the world, how I show up in the world, all of these things. And I just had a moment of like, you know what, whether it's a marriage or God or faith construct or a church or a job or a geographic location, whatever, I at some point got to the point where I just thought to myself, I never want to be held by anything. I don't want to be held by ever again. Do you know what I mean? I never want to be shackled by anything. I don't want to be shackled by. It was just kind of that moment for me where it was like, I'm just done with circles. I've wasted a lot of time. You know, I've lost a lot of time to a marriage that, you know, didn't go anywhere after seven years. Um, We had two very unhappy people and a loss of really one's twenties. Um, you know, a lot of investment in, in church, a lot of investment in a particular God construct, a lot of investment, you know, and these aren't things that I count as like total losses, but there was a sense of like, I had come to the end of all of it. And I was sort of sitting there alone, like in my sackcloth and ashes. And I just thought, okay, like it is time to take me and my little life and shoot it across the sky. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I feel really broken right now. I feel really alone. I don't really feel like I have much, but I have my will, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I had, I had this sense of like kind of half grit and half gumption and I just went for it. And so I think that's for me, why I really indict circles, circles objectively, obviously not a bad thing, but in the context where someone really wants an alive faith engagement that is unpredictable and unanticipated and, um, without precedent and alive and full of adventure and uncharted and subversive and all of these things, circles isn't probably where one wants to to hang. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've touched a little bit on radical theology. You locate yourself squarely in that camp. I'm someone who has been in that camp for a while as well. My own feeling is that radical theology ought to be a sort of big tent um, mm-hmm. that, that can accommodate a lot of theological variety. I'm curious where maybe you locate yourself within that space and maybe one way of, I don't know, litmus test, a radical theology litmus test. <laughs> what is, oh my what is, gosh. I know. What does the phrase God is dead mean to you? <laughs> oh gosh. There was a, fr- there was a time in my life where that phrase meant nothing, but, you know, causing me to be very curious. You know, I, I talk about um, in the book, the, in my first chapter, the very first time I heard that phrase and um, how alarming it was, but also very curious and, and sort of exciting. I mean, when you say death of God, obviously I have the basics that pop up in my head. You know, I have Frederick Nietzsche's gay science and the parable of the madman. And, you know, the the first time we hear, you know, this idea of the madman running into the town square and really proclaiming God is dead and what that means. And, you know, then later being picked up on by, you know, the OGs of the, the DOG movement, really, of the 1960s and Time magazine and the front cover is God dead and Thomas Altizer and William Hamilton and, you know, Gabriel Vahanian and, and all of those guys, um, you know, moving into, you know, what would be the first wave of radical theology, which was essentially kind of Christian atheism, um, at yeah. the very least, a, a non-realist belief, maybe. <laughs> Um, but you know, now like theology of radical theology, I would say is in its fourth wave. And, you know, I was really introduced to radical theology by Jeffrey Robbins. And I was at a Peter Rollins event in Belfast. And I remember, um, Jeff had just come out with his book, radical theology, a vision for change. This was five or six years ago now. And, um, you know, he kind of sat there and opened with this line that I'll never forget. And it's the line that starts out my book, you know, a half a century after the death of God movement, we're still not done with the word God yet. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's me like done with the big G God, like the guy who lives in the sky, the big other, you know, mm-hmm. the interventionist God of agency and and morals and, you know, underlying structure and all of these things. Yeah. That, that I'm done with, but like, 
you know, what happens in the name of God and how God persists and insists, as John Caputo might say, um, no, I'm, I'm not quite done with this. And people are welcome to be done with it. And, you know, I know many an atheist who are legitimately done with it and that's okay. But I think a lot of people who are moving on from traditional notions of God, certainly, you know, evangelicalism really default into agnosticism and atheism. They don't necessarily want to be, I think they can intuit and imagine there's something that fits the complexity and the dimensionality of their humanity better. They just don't know quite what that is. And again, that is why I wrote the book to try and offer up some new ways of thinking about this stuff. So when you say that radical theology is big and generous and can make room for theism, yeah, maybe, but I would say theism in the way that like, we're still wondering how God insists in the world and mm-hmm. all that is being housed in, in that little noun. Yeah. 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 So you, uh, you just invoked Caputo there um, for yeah. a second. And I remember mm-hmm. several years ago, there's a panel discussion between Kath. Uh, there, I think there were a few people, but Catherine Keller was there and Caputo mm-hmm. and yeah. Caputo was doing his whole, you know, God doesn't exist. God insists mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And I'll never forget it. Kelly responded. Um, she said, she's like, well, if God insists on existing, I, I would just let her. <laughs> and I think it's a great response to the, uh, to the proclamation. God is dead. It's like, well, which God? Yeah. Which God? And it seems to me that it's, it's even more radical than insisting on an insistence on bracketing out metaphysics, right? Like I get the importance of that for a time, but I think it is possible to end up with a variety of radical theology that can border on dogmatism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not accusing Caputo of that by any, no, I, but, I understand. Yeah. Um, but I think that's what happens when people lean a little bit too far into the, the atheistic side mm-hmm. of radical theology. Mm-hmm. For sure. The reason why I think that radical theology borders on dogmatism sometimes is because it has a very apophatic way of speaking about God. So, you know, where we would say we know God, God is actually unknowable. And where we have contained God, God is actually uncontainable. Where we have conditioned God, God is actually unconditional. And so in that sense, it it can present as a this or that way of speaking. Yeah. But John Caputo sort of gives that a little bit more nuance by saying, well, all language is wounded language. I love that phrase, wounded language, because, you know, essentially all communication is wounded, because if we're trying to speak about our phenomenal experience with anything, you know, language is always going to be the second rate way of doing that, because the first rate way just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I think that is the struggle. And, you know, you have someone, you know, like you said, radical theology is spectrum. So you have someone like John Caputo who wants to take kingdom of God language and language from, you know, the, the Pauline epistles and, and really reauthor them and, yeah. you know, give them kind of new subversive meaning. And then you have someone like Jeffrey Robbins, who I just mentioned, who's, who says, no, actually we need new language. So instead of messianic, it's, you know, metamorphosism. And instead of, you know, resurrection, you know, it's, um, insurrection, which Peter Rollins says as well. So it is really kind of a spectrum, but I think, you know, when it comes to metaphysics, it's funny, I'm doing a series on my Patreon right now called what is truth. And it's all about post-Christianity and metaphysics, because, um, one of the last podcast interviews I did, um, the guy was really into metaphysics and he obviously caught onto the fact that I don't talk about God in ontological terms, um, but said, you know, well, metaphysics is so much bigger than just the being of God and ontology of God. And I said, yeah, you're right. Um, but I'm, I'm still not buying and trading in currencies of metaphysics. I'm just not doing that. There's more to life and theology and philosophy other than metaphysics. And he brought up a David Bentley Hart quote, and it's, you know, how Bentley Hart speaks very highfalutin. And (laughs) I don't agree with him all the time, but I always agree with his presentation because he's just so smug. (laughs) smug. But, you know, his his (laughs) indictment on doing theology post metaphysics, he basically said um, doing theology post metaphysics is like trying to breathe in a post air atmosphere or something to that effect. Yeah. Um, basically saying there's no way it's, it's, it's arrogant and it's pretentious to even talk about God, to use that kind of language post metaphysics. It's impossible. 
I mean, I, I see the critique and I understand where he's coming from, but when you, when you take metaphysical realities off the table to simply speak about theological ones, I don't know. I, I just think, I think there's a way to do it. And, and I don't, I don't know why everyone is so all, you know what it is. I mean, we, we move on from traditional notions of God and we feel so high and mighty that we've done so, right? We get so arrogant, like, you know, oh yeah, like, I don't really believe like this God person exists anymore. I'm more about the universe with a capital U. I'm more about love with a capital L or T with a capital truth. Or, you know, there's so many ways that we kind of fill that void that that God in the sky left and our theologies get bigger and our theologies get generous, but we're still asking the wrong question. Do you know what I mean? And we're answering that question with how we fill that, that yeah. void. We just have such an addiction to want to know. Uh, that, that's probably true. So what in your estimation is the, the right question? I think we need to move past feeling like we have to know how this all works and how it all hangs together. Mm. I think any question that we ever had we have to say, what does it look like to subvert this question and then subvert it again? Any yeah. imagination that we may have ever had for God and faith and meaning making mechanisms at all. <laughs> um, I think we have to go to the furthest corner of our most wild imagination and then go even further than that. And I think we have to be okay with the fact that the quest itself is theological and the quest and the journey is really all that we have ever been promised. Um, everything else is unpromisable. And so, yeah, we move on from the big God in the sky to something else to something more generous, but we're still asking like, well, you know, what holds meaning and where can I find, you know, a way in which to sort of model my life by that is religious or has that comes from outside of myself, or what does it mean to like seek higher truth or yeah. do, do you know what I mean? We, we just don't go to the same answer. We go to a different answer, but we're asking, asking the same questions. And you know, it's, it's, a, I think it's a hard road, like the, the radical theology road, the post-theistic road, like, you know, Pete Rollins does a lot with the tyranny of happiness and the idolatry of God and, you know, our absolute addiction to, to certainty and all of that. And so we give that up and it is so uncomfortable and so vulnerable. And it is so like, you know, we kind of want to scratch our eyeballs out. Like it's so, it's so hard to sit in and it's so hard to live in, but essentially it's like, and I, I use this quote a lot for a lot of things because I just love it. But, you know, Schubert Ogden says that faith is actually answering the question that life is worth the living of it. And this for me is enough. This is faith enough. This is under understanding enough that just living my life, saying that this is all worth it mm -hmm. and how I show up in the world and and how I'm writing my story and, and all of that that matters. You know, this this is all enough. So it's not necessarily living your life because one day you're going to see it all clearly or there's some ultimate purpose or meaning, you know, whatever you, maybe, maybe it's all meaninglessness, you know, maybe, you know, you can have a totally nihilistic way of, of looking at all this and maybe that's all true, but it's up to us to make meaning in the meaninglessness. You know what I mean? It's up to us to kind of bring that creative productivity I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. And if you're not going to yeah. sort of attribute ultimate meaning to a single a signifier, whether it be God or something else, then like you say that we're not done with the word God yet. We don't even have to take that sort of phraseology literally. We're not done with meaning making yet. We're not done with trying to push back the threat of nihilism yet. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. And when you, when you sort of break up the monolithic edifice of meaning and ultimacy and all that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. it opens the door to a lot of interesting things all the demons and angels come out. And I think that atheism isn't an appropriate way to respond to it. I think polytheism maybe is a better way because there's so many other sort of loci, I guess, of meaning and these sorts of things that I think radical theology hasn't really learned how to speak to yet. I think a lot of the work with radical theology has been done in the in the shadow of the of the one. We've announced the death of God, but haven't been able to articulate what comes next. But I also think that that's maybe the point though, isn't it? Because, you know, if we want to take off on, you know, true deconstruction, you know, deconstruction a la Martin Heidegger and of course, mm. you know, Jack Derrida, which I talk um, about in my book as well. It's the sense of, you know, the, the French word l'avenir, you know, which means to come, but not in a, not in a futuristic way where we can kind of see it on the horizon, but it's this mm -hmm. sense of, 
constant movement of it's coming and it's going and it's coming and it's going again. And we can't anticipate it. You know, um, we can't see it. And we only know that it's visited us because it's left again. You know what I mean? And when it comes back again, we won't have any, it, it, it's just, just blown wide open everything. You know, deconstruction is this innate combustibility within all things to just, decimate, you know, anything we ever kind of thought we knew or um, any kind of structure that we thought thought was built and and reliable in a sense. Mm. So I'm not even sure that it's the task of radical theology to say what's next. I think it's the task of radical theology to set us up for whatever might be next that we can't possibly see coming. That's fair. I think that there's some truth to that. I often think about radical theology more as a sort of way station than any sort of destination. But to the extent that want to still engage with a theological project, then mm-hmm. there has to be something beyond deconstruction that is not just destruction, um, right. right? Because we're not done with God yet. Right. Um, so what does that mean for us now? I think there is a place for that kind of constructive task, whether it's radical theology as such, I don't know, but I feel like there is a trajectory mm. that is opening up mm. uh, within yeah. these kinds of spaces that uh, I can't really uh, articulate what it is and that, I think that's what I'm kind of speaking to. There's something else opening up here that we haven't really been able to articulate. And, and Yeah. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing that we can't articulate it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think I think we do our best to to articulate something. You know, essentially, we're, we're trying to speak about the unspeakable. And we're trying to describe, you know, what is, uh, was on, which is undescri- that which is undescribable and we do our best. And it doesn't mean that we get to just, you know, use that as a default. Well, you know, you, you can't really talk about this. So let's not try. No, obviously we're trying, obviously we're making attempts, but we make attempts so that people can feel free from all that is restricting them to uh-huh. make attempts past a glass ceiling that they don't think they can smash smash right. through because of course it can't just be moment after moment of deconstruction and destruction like there's got to be a building up there's got to be you know a creating and a bit of decimating and kind of creating again and so on and so forth you know mm-hmm. uh derrida and caputo and taylor and all those guys would would call it event you know um an event is different every time in a lot of ways, and I, I say this in my book quite a bit, these conversations, they in general just feel like you've fallen down the rabbit hole, you know, in Allison, uh-huh. Alice's looking glass. They, you know, it makes, it makes you feel like you're a guest at the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Like it's just all upside down. But I think if we're going to talk about God in, in these big ways, if we're going to talk about life, if we're going to talk about how to continue to engage with Christianity, because that that's my whole thing, like post-Christianity, after Christianity. There's a reason why it's just not after, after, <laughs> you know, there's a reason right. why it's not atheist or just post-religion. Like we are still, and I think it's, um, oh, am I getting this right? Jean-Luc Nancy, who mm-hmm. kind of quotes Nietzsche and saying, you know, Nietzsche talked about, you know, living in, in the shadow of Buddha a thousand years after his death. And now essentially we're asking how do, how are we living in the shadow of the death of God, you know, right. so many years after its death, essentially, how does Christianity still hold us? We're past it, but Christianity is so much more than just a religion story, a God, like it has essentially built the West. <laughs> sure. um, and you, it's hard to understand um, power structures, government patriarch like you name it outside of you know yeah. christian power structures and, and christian frameworks and epistemologies so it's it's that big like it even holds atheism you know mm-hmm. atheism wouldn't oh, exist yeah. without it's you know it's a response to, to the, the judeo-christian god so it's it's just so so huge um and so we're constantly trying to reevaluate how we engage in it how does it hold us still and what what difference does any of this still make and that's sort of the the quest I'm after in all this. I think other people are after it too. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I'm I'm happy to just kind of hold that as an open question. Like what difference does it make? Um, but you spoke to the the Christian in post-Christian. You didn't say anything about Jesus. So let's talk about Jesus for a minute. I mean, it's, let's not, do something, that. <laughs> it's not something you spend a lot of time with in the book, but there were moments where like I couldn't help but get the sense that although you're foregrounding the post and post-Christian, maybe there's nonetheless a real adherence. I don't know if that's the right word, but certainly a deep affinity to the figure of Jesus. And that's something I I share. It's something I haven't given up on. 
for whatever reason. Um, would you say that's right? And like, if, if so, why, why can't we get rid of Jesus? And not only that, why can't we get rid of Jesus? Should we get rid of Jesus? Because everyone has their own variety of Jesus and it just becomes like a game of yeah, who's Jesus wins. Yeah, who's <laughs> yeah. Jesus wins. And, and it's just like, you yeah. know, I don't know that I want to play that game. No, I'm so, I'm so uninterested in that game. So, so utterly uninterested. It's a total snooze. Um, I say this a lot. I'm, I'm post-Christianity, but I'm certainly not post-faith and I'm not post-Jesus. And if we're going to use the phrase post-Christianity or after Christianity, that means we have to engage Jesus because Jesus is obviously Christianity's central figure. I think where people get tripped up is that and and this is what my my third chapter in my book is all about. The the name of the chapter is um, Jesus after saviorism and meaning after metaphysicality. We have been so, and by we, I mean most of Christianity and certainly you know conservative and evangelical Christianity has been so conditioned to see Christ as a savior figure who lives in their hearts. You know the crosses were on it's Good Friday today. So, you know um, mm-hmm. the crosses about penal substitutionary atonement that you know taking on of our sins and eternal life and resurrection is part of that. And if you move that completely off the table. What space does Jesus have? What is the vocation that he occupies within Christianity? And why does Jesus still make a difference? Um, And so I think the first thing we need to do is just start having a new imagination that the central figure of Christianity might not be the central point and that there are other ways and maybe even better ways to engage Jesus outside of, you know, a very individualistic sort of Jesus lives in my heart sort of story. And essentially, that's like right in line with, you know, most individualistic tendencies that in general undermines the entire communal nature of Christianity to, to begin yeah. with. So to speak to the communal nature of Christianity, I couldn't help but notice that there was, I don't know how to say it, there didn't seem to be a lot of focus or discussion around, you know, questions of ethics or politics. And I get that that's not the kind of book that you're writing. Um mm-hmm. If you had to write another chapter that included that kind of stuff, what what would what would you want to say? Well, you know, I have a new book coming out in June, and it's called Reconfiguring a Collection of Post-Christian Thoughts and Theologies. And this is where I really get into the weeds of some of this stuff. You know, I have a collection of about 40 essays um, that are written more like letters to my readers that are dealing with everything from LGBTQ to racism to high holy holidays and how do we engage those as post-Christians to long-held doctrines like Trinity and hell and rapture theology. I talk about death. I talk about love. I talk about meaning making. Like the current book, Save in the Known Way, again, was trying to give like a 30,000 foot look at like, okay, how does all of this hang together how are we going to do this if we're going to move on from traditional notions? So yeah, I talk a lot about radical theology. I talk a lot about deconstruction and perhaps a la Derrida. You yeah. know, I talk about um, new theological imaginations. I talk about, you know, Richard Carney's anathism. You know, I, I talk about, you know, various ways of, of engaging Jesus and ways that I have found helpful and all of that. So like the weeds of what does this look like on the day to day? That's the next book. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Um, yeah, don't give it away. But we'll I wait. did. I don't want you to feel like I'm skirting your question because I I think it's important. Um, so I I wanted to say that to kind of preface it. But the next thing I want to say is, you know, so much of our politic and our ethics in life comes from how we see God how we see ourselves being held by all of this stuff. I mean, all you have to do is look like, all you have to do is look at American politics. You know, the liberal side, the democratic side of American politics, they're not atheists. A lot of them are liberal Christians and have a very generous theology for what God wants for society, for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow, right? And then of course you have the- I think they're atheists. They just don't know it yet. (laughs) Maybe some (laughs) of them, certainly. But you know, there's a lot of good that's being done in the name of God. And then there's a lot of really diabolical stuff that's being done in the name of God too. So I feel like if you blow up some of these concepts, if you take the, you know, does God exist or not exist? You know, is, is scripture infallible or not? Like, was Jesus the son of God, a savior, or was he just a good moral teacher? Like if you take some of these, this or that, these binaries off of the table and you ask people to transcend that conversation entirely and asking new questions of God and faith entirely, that it does start new conversations about politics and ethics as well, because that that all flows from this stuff. People don't always realize how connected it is, but it's integrally um, connected. So that's, I hope, will be the, the first start. 
Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I th- I'm looking forward to reading the next book. What, what's it going to be called? Uh, the name of the book is Reconfiguring a Collection of Post-Christian Thoughts and Theologies, and it should be out late June. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that rolls right off the top. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had to remember. <laughs> I, I got, did I get all those words in there? Yeah, I did. Okay. No, that's cool. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to checking that out and love to have you back on to talk about it and, you know, pick up this conversation. Actually, one last question. I don't know. If, actually, I don't know yeah. if we have time. Um, uh, radical theology has a rap as being very white, very male. And I think there's some yeah. truth to that. What, yeah. why, do you th- why do you think that is? What's that all about? Oh, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> you do? It may, um, may not we... be suitable for a minute and a half uh, left. Should we save it but for next I, time? I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll just say this as like a teaser. I think there are real legit reasons for that. And I think a lot of them center in in privilege. Mm-hmm. So that that it is a it's a privilege to to do theology <clears throat> to talk about God in these ways because there's not a need for a certain kind of God to exist. Um, the way there is a need maybe in, in other areas. And I will also say that I don't think radical theology has ever really given proper due to the fact that its roots are in liberation theology also. Yeah. I I think those are legitimate things to say about it. Um, Jordan Miller will say radical theology is liberation theology for white people. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, with that, um, there's only a few moments left. I just want to say thanks. I really enjoyed talking to you about your book, and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading more from you and, and speaking to you Thank again. You. Absolutely. Me too. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good one. All right. You too, Matt. Bye. Bye.